looking at Matthew chapter 3 today, and uh, we're going to be, we're skipping over a chapter, uh, we're going to come back to that, um, dealing with the birth of Christ, but we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 3 today. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance." And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe uh, is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Uh, Well, when celebrities are visiting a particular location, whether they're on tour or just visiting for one night, uh, they have a document that's called a rider, and the rider kind of gives their requirements that, are, that, that, that the uh, venue needs to prepare for when they get there. And kind of their rider can sometimes tell a little bit about who they are as a person um, and how they handle themselves once they arrive can c- tell you a lot about them as well. So, for example, I had a friend of mine who uh, worked at a seminary and he was kind of in charge of the hospitality and was in charge of um, booking different speakers to come in for chapels and different events and stuff. And uh, we, I don't know how it came up, we were talking about this one particular Christian leader, um, kind of a celebrity seminary person. Um, he's like, I don't like that guy at all. I'm like, why? It seems like a good guy to me. He's like, this, this guy, when he came, he required that uh, he only have red Jolly Ranchers when he got there. So I had to go through and buy a whole bag of Jolly Ranchers, and I had to pick out all of them except for the red ones. And, it, you know, I was really angry about it. But that's nothing compared to what some celebrities require. Uh, Mary J. Blige, for example, on her, one of her tours, she required that a new toilet seat be installed at every location that she went to. Uh, Katy Perry, at her 2011 tour, had a 23-point rider, uh, or driver policy. And so she had all these policies that her drivers had to follow. One of them was that they not talk to her uh, as she was getting into the car. Uh, second one was that they not look at her in, in, through the rearview rear mirror. Um, Jennifer Lopez, she was doing 
a charity recording session in 2002, and she submitted her standard tour rider, which required a 40-foot uh, van, or a 40-foot trailer, with everything draped in white. Flowers, tablecloths, drapery, couches, candles, everything. Famous uh, Beatle, Paul McCartney, his demands. All lamps must be halogen floor lamps with dimmer switch only. Only animal-free materials, cottons, denims, velour, etc. Do not provide furniture made of any animal skin or print. Do not provide artificial versions of animal skin or print either. No leather, leather seating is allowed in the black stretch limousine as well. Arrange for a dry cleaner before arrival. Full and leafy floor plants, but no trees. We want plants that are just as full on the bottom as the top, such as a palm, bamboo, peace lily, etc. No tree trunks. Some of them are just plain hilarious. For example, Will Farrell, I think he was having a little fun with this. He required uh, an electric three-wheel mobility scooter, a flight of stairs on wheels, a fake tree on wheels, and a rainbow on wheels. Then you have some that are just kind of cute. Uh, Joe Jonas, uh, he asked that 12 puppies be in his dressing room for the tours that he went to. And he was kind of disappointed because he said it was rare that he actually got the 12 puppies. But you think about the preparations for an important person and kind of the preparations for an important person and then kind of how they conduct themselves once they, once they get there tells you a lot about that person. And I think that's the same thing in this passage that we're looking at. We see kind of the preparation for Jesus and then Jesus' arrival on the scene as he doesn't begin his formal ministry but uh, is kind of recognized for who he is, at least in, the, in this limited capacity. So what does this passage tell us about who Jesus is? Uh, first, about, uh, first of all, who is the one who prepares the way for Jesus? It's not someone you'd expect. The person who prepares the way is a wild man. Uh, he's someone who's odd by society's standards. He lives in the wilderness. He, uh, has, he dresses himself in camel's fur. He, drink, he eats honey and locusts. Uh, he's someone who's an outcast, and yet this is the person that's called to prepare the way for the Savior of the world. He's a voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way, and his message is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, repent for the king is here. He's here. And you need you to prepare yourself to meet this king. He was wildly popular among the people. It says that all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him. He's incredibly popular but he's an oddball. Some might say even a weirdo. Uh, he looks weird. He's hanging out in the desert. But he's also not afraid to speak his mind. Uh, we see in this passage, we'll look at it in a second, a little bit deeper, but he speaks out against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's not afraid to speak the truth. Uh, he's not afraid to speak out against the king, uh, Herod Antipas, and, her, and, and the relationship that he was in with Herodias. So he's not afraid to speak the truth, but he's, he's kind of different. He's kind of odd. Jesus kind of has a humble herald, so to speak. There's an individual by the name of Robert Samuel. Uh, he's almost 50 years old. He has an interesting job. Uh, his job is to basically stand in line, sit in line, or even sleep in line to get the most popular products or uh, tickets for very wealthy people. And so what he'll do is he'll just sit, he'll bring his tent, sometimes sleep, sometimes just sit there, 
And he'll wait sometimes for days for whether it's an iPhone release or whether it's tickets to uh, Hamilton. He said that was the most difficult because he was in his tent. It was like zero degrees and it froze on the inside of his tent. And he'll sit there for days to get tickets or products for wealthy people. And then when it gets to the time when, you know, it's his turn, sometimes, you know, he'll be able to just purchase the product or ticket. But other times... He has, you know, the person who purchases it will actually have to attend, so he'll give his spot to the person who's paying for him to wait in line. And I think that's a picture of what John the Baptist is doing. He's kind of waiting in line, preparing the way, and now Jesus has come on the scene, and John is like, here you go, it's your spot. He's not trying to take authority for himself. Uh, He's incredibly popular, much more popular than Jesus is at this point. If he wanted to, he could have probably tried to build a greater name for himself, but he knows his purpose. He's there to hold the line for Jesus. And so Jesus comes there, and and John is like, here you go. In John 3, 28 to 30, we see this. John says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so the one who prepares the way, he's different by society's standards. You might expect the savior of the world to come with great pomp and circumstance. You might expect a great herald to proclaim his way. But we see this wild man in the wilderness preparing the way. And so he says, he must increase, I must decrease. And Jesus takes over. So we see who prepares the way for Jesus. It's a wild man in the desert. The next thing we see is, where does the king appear? He appears in the wilderness. Again, you would expect someone, a great king, to, especially in the ancient world in Israel, to appear in Jerusalem, kind of the center of religious life for Judaism. You'd expect him to appear there, and we'd expect for him to appear before all the religious leaders and all the authorities of the earth, but he doesn't do that, at least not initially. He chooses to go out to this itinerant preacher in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, in a desert, barren land. Now, why does he do that? Why does he choose to reveal himself kind of for the first time in the wilderness? Well, if we look at the Old Testament background for the wilderness, the wilderness is kind of used in a number of different ways. Uh, But one way that the wilderness is used is it's used as a place of escape. Uh, First of all, David escapes from Saul in the wilderness. Elijah escaped from Jezebel. And uh, not only is it a place of escape, but it's also a place where God met with his people. Uh, The most prominent example is when uh, God met with the Israelites at Mount Sinai and made that incredible covenant with them. And so we see that it's a place of escape, it's a place where God meets with his people, it's also a place of restoration. And there's a number of scriptures in the Old Testament talk about how uh, the wilderness is going to be restored, the place that's desert and barren is going to be brought back to life. Uh, One example is Isaiah 42, 13 and 15. It says, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. 
Then again, in Hosea, speaking of God's renewal, uh, Hosea writes this, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at a time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And so the desert, it's a place of escape. It's a place where God meets with the people and a place of renewal. So why does Jesus go out to the desert, to the wilderness? I think he goes out to the desert, to the wilderness, to show what kind of a God he is. He's a God who restores that which is broken. He brings life to that which is barren. And the good news we see in the gospel is that Jesus meets us in the wilderness. He doesn't meet us when we have it all together, when we fix, out, fix up our life, where we can check all the boxes, or we qualify. He meets us in our brokenness. He meets us at our place of need. And that's the type of Savior that Christ is. He's a Savior who restores that which is broken, brings life to that which is barren. And so it's only fitting that the Messiah would go out to the wilderness as a demonstration of the fact that he's going to make all things new. What an incredible hope that is for us as believers. That those broken areas of our life where we need healing, he meets us in those places. And we see as he goes throughout his ministry that those are the people that he kind of meets with. He meets with the people whose lives are barren. The tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the people who seems like they don't have anything going for them. He meets them and brings them new life. And God does the same thing today. He meets us in barren places. So the king appears in the wilderness. He's announced by a wild man. And what does the king require? A king requires repentance. If we're to enter into the kingdom of God, we must repent and be born again. That is, we need to change our thinking, that we need to abandon everything that we thought that we knew about life in order to find our true life in Christ. So in this passage, John the Baptist speaks quite harshly to the religious leaders and calls them to a complete reorientation of their lives. I mean, think for a moment about these religious leaders. Uh, Think about who they, they were. They thought that they had it all together. They kept all the laws, or at least they thought they did. They fasted, they prayed, they went to the, to the, to the temple, they worshipped. They thought they were on the right track. And yet here, John is calling them to repentance. And notice in the passage it says that they were coming out to, to, to the baptism. It doesn't say they were coming to be baptized. They were coming to the baptism. Most likely what they're doing is they're just coming to see what all the hubbubaboo is about. To kind of figure out what's happening. Why are all these people so interested in John? And so they're coming kind of as observers. They're not really interested as much in what John is saying or being baptized themselves. They're just kind of interested in what's happening. And yet John is going to call them to something that's shocking to them. He's going to call them to repent and be baptized. Now we think about the the idea of baptism and, you know, it's a Christian rite and we understand what that means as Christians uh, but back then, they probably had an understanding of baptism uh, and it, kind of the connotation of what it meant was being uh, of Gentile conversion. In other words, when someone was a Gentile, that is not a Jew, and they wanted to become a Jew, uh, they would sometimes be baptized. And it was kind of a symbol of, okay, I'm entering into the waters, and, and now my former uncleanness, the fact that I'm a sinner, is, is kind of being cleansed away, and now I can become a Jew, and I can experience a relationship with God. That's kind of 
what people understood it to be. And so it's shocking that John would ask the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the people who were the best Jews, to be baptized. It would have been incredibly offensive that he's calling them to rethink everything that they thought they knew about God. Not just the sinner, not just the Gentile, you need to be baptized as well. The Pharisees and Sadducees were probably thinking to themselves, why would I be baptized? Baptism is for those Gentile scum. We're not sinners. We're not tax collectors. We don't need to be baptized. We don't need to repent. And yet John says that's exactly what you need to do. You need to rethink everything that you thought that you knew about God, everything you thought you knew about righteousness, and enter into the kingdom of God. It's not something that's easy to do. Jesus later uh, likened it to becoming like a little child. He said this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. So my uh, son is at that age where he asks a lot of questions, and he's very curious about the world. You know, when you think about a young child, and they ask a lot of questions, and for the most part, they tend to kind of take what you say at face value. So, you know, you tell a child something, you know, some of us tell our children about Santa Claus. You know, you tell them about Santa Claus, and a little child, it's like, you know, they just believe in Santa Claus. You know, they don't think about the fact that reindeers can't fly, or um, the absurdity of a very overweight man going through a little tiny chimney, or the, uh, you know, the fact that one man could never go throughout the whole world you know, in one particular night. They don't think about that. They accept what their parents say. And I think that's what God calls us to as believers, to accept what is true. And of course, unlike Santa Claus, what he says is actually true. And so John is calling for the Sadducees and the, and the Pharisees and everyone to repent of what they thought they knew and to enter into the kingdom of heaven like a little child and to accept it with, with uh, humility and with faith. But it's not an easy thing to do. Repentance is never easy. Uh, in, a tar- in an article written by uh, Christianity Today's Mark Gailey, he writes this, On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther is said to have posted 95 theses or disputation on the power of indulgences on the door of All Saints Church. The professor of moral theology at the University of Wittenberg was proposing an academic debate about indulgences, the practice of doing good works or offering money in order to remove punishment for sin. Luther was disturbed by how indulgences encourages people to pay for forgiveness rather than repent. Instead, Luther argued, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole of life of believers should be repentance. That is as hard to swallow today as it was then. We're not the first to notice how absent the theme of repentance is today. Carl Menigan's 1988 bestseller, Whatever Became of Sin, could have easily been included a sequel, Whatever Became of Repentance. Galley goes on to note that we've, uh, this idea of repentance is unpopular because we are addicted to justifying our own actions and pointing out the evil in others. He says, if I really looked at my own self-centeredness and pride, I'd have to admit that I'm also a hypocrite and a moral failure. He concludes, well, yes, aren't we all? That's precisely why Jesus came, to save the world from itself and to save us from ourselves. That's why the word repentance is usually connected to the phrase good news, as Mark highlights it in his summary of Jesus' earthly preaching, repent and believe the good news. 
And so the requirement to enter into the kingdom of heaven is repentance. That we rethink what we thought that we knew about God. What we thought we knew about holiness. And that would, that's what John is calling the people to do. Turn from your sins. Rethink what you thought was righteous. And embrace the Savior who's coming. Repentance is something that's done at the beginning of the Christian life when we become believers. But it's also something that's done continually. Like Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. We need to be constantly listen to the voice of our Heavenly Father, taking what He says at face value and walking in obedience before Him. So that's the requirement that John says to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then we finally see what the king is like. We finally see what the king of like is like. On the one hand, he's an incredibly powerful person. On the one hand, John says that he's unworthy to carry his sandals. That he's that incredibly mighty. And let's not miss what that means here. Uh, in the ancient world, it was taught that a disciple was above doing uh, one task, and that was carrying and taking off the, the, the sandals of his master. I mean, if the master asked him to do almost anything else, that was great. But taking off his sandals, carrying his sandals, that was below a disciple. That was the job of a slave or a servant. And even for the slave or the servant, that was like the most humility, humiliating, lowest task that they could be called to do. And John says, in essence, he is so great that I'm not even worthy to be his servant. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. I'm not even worthy to do the most menial task for him. And so John says he's that incredibly great. Matthew notes the greatness of Jesus from the passage that he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And, and what's interesting in this passage that he quotes in, in, in chapter 3, verse 3, um, it, again, it's from Isaiah chapter 40. And in the context of Isaiah 40, the passage is not talking about the Messiah. It's talking about God himself. And so not everyone in the ancient world, in, in the ancient church, knew the fact that Jesus was God. We know that, that God, he was God with skin on. But Matthew makes it very clear that he wasn't just a Messiah. He wasn't just a Savior. He was also God in the flesh. So he's incredibly great. And John says that he's able to do things that only God can do. He says that he'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That God, Jesus will come and he'll... Uh, Send out his spirit on those who believe that their hearts will be transformed, that they can love God from a pure heart. He says he will also baptize with fire. It's a picture of judgment. He says he'll clear his threshing floor and the chaff will be burned. That is those who do not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Those who choose their own kingdom will be destroyed. And so the Messiah that John proclaims is the Messiah who's incredibly mighty, God with skin on, who can do God things, who can send his spirit, who, who, who will one day judge the living and the dead. So he's incredibly powerful. And how would you expect someone that powerful to conduct themselves? Coming to John. I'd expect him to run up and say, oh, good job, John. I'll take it from here. Now everybody come and be baptized. I'm going to baptize you. That's how you might expect him to behave, but he doesn't do that. He comes to John, and he says, I need to be baptized. Now, as we look at that, this episode, it's kind of perplexed readers of the New Testament for, for a long time. It's like, why would Jesus be baptized? 
And I think part of the reason it confuses us is because, you know, specifically in this passage, he's talking about, John's talking about a baptism of repentance, you know, and how the, the people are confessing their sins. But of course, we know Jesus didn't have to repent. He didn't need to confess his sins. So I think, you know, when we're thinking about this baptism, I think that we're missing the primary kind of imagery of baptism. Now, baptism for us as believers, what does it signify? Uh, kind of in a secondary way, it signifies being cleansed by Christ. But deeper than that, more often the way it's used is that when we're baptized, we go down into the waters, and it's a picture of us being buried and dying with Christ. And then being raised up from the waters, it's a picture of us being raised to new life, that we were dead and now we're alive because of Christ. Uh, that's the way Paul uses it in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. It says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. So that's the way that we understand it as believers. It's about identifying with Christ's death, being raised to new life. But then you think about the, the ancient world and the, and the people that John was talking to. They didn't have that understanding that we have. They didn't understand that Messiah was going to come and die and rise again, at least for the most part. So what did they think of when they thought about water? Of course, it was the, the, the uh, Gentile conversion, but there was also another symbol of water in the Old Testament, and that symbol was symbol of judgment. When you look at the, the Old Testament in the book of, uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, God sees that all the intents and, and purposes of man's heart are wicked continually. And he resolves that he's going to judge the world through water, through a flood. That all of the earth is going to be destroyed except for Noah and his family. And they're going to be saved through the water. That they're going to be given, uh, that he, they're given instructions, Noah's given instructions to build a boat. And the waters of judgment come, but they're saved. Then you have the story of the Israelites. They're rescued from Egypt. They're up against the Red Sea. They have nowhere to go. And the waters part. God parts the waters. They walk through on dry ground. But then the Egyptians following after them, the waters come upon them and they experience the judgment of God. And so a number of times in the scriptures in the Old Testament, the waters uh, um, symbolize the judgment of God. So then we think about that, and why would Jesus be baptized? It wasn't because he needed to repent. It wasn't because he needed to be cleansed. I believe it was because he was identifying with us. He needed to experience the waters of judgment. And so as he's being baptized, it's a symbol of the fact that one day he's going to be judged for the sins of the world. One day he's going to be crucified and laid in a dark tomb. One day he's going to rise again from the grave. And that sacrifice is going to be enough. The Father is going to say, like he says in this passage, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And I believe that Jesus was baptized so that we could experience the favor of God. Jesus experienced the waters of judgment. He was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again. So the Father might say to us, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. So I believe that Jesus was baptized for you and for me so that we might experience the favor of God. 
that we might experience the righteousness of God and go to heaven one day and spend forever with him. What an incredible privilege that is for us as believers. That for those of us who have believed in Christ, repented of our sins, God delights in us. God looks with favor upon us. Not because we have it all together, not because we're righteous, but because of what Christ has done. Because he sees the righteousness of Christ in us. That's something that should move our hearts. That's something that should strengthen us as we face adversity. There's a story I read about a man named Edward Farrell. And uh, he was from Detroit. He decided he was going to go on a trip to Ireland. His uh, uncle, Uncle Seamus, lived there. Um, he was turning 80 years old. And so um, Edward went to visit his Uncle Seamus on, for his 80th birthday. And so the morning of his birthday came, and Edward and his uncle got up before dawn, and they went out and they saw the most incredible sunrise. And Uncle Seamus just sat there by the edge of the water. It was on a beach, and he just sat there, and he just stared for like 20 minutes. Finally, after 20 minutes, he gets up, and he just starts skipping down the beach, just like he's 18 years old. Got this big smile on his face. Ed goes, and he catches up with him. He says this, Uncle Seamus, you look very happy. Do you want to tell me why? He said, yes, lad. Tears washing down his face. You see, the father is fond of me. Ah, my father is so very fond of me. If you're a believer in Christ, the father is fond of you. Your name is written in heaven, and this is all because Jesus was baptized for you. So who prepares the way for the king? It's a wild man in the desert. Not the person that we expect. But Jesus comes in humility. He comes in humility in the wilderness. He comes in the wilderness because the wilderness is a place of renewal. A reminder of the fact that God can restore any broken areas of our life. That there's no one that's too far for his love, too far for his grace. He calls us to repentance. That's the only way to enter into the kingdom of heaven. We need to rethink what we thought we knew about God and accept what Christ has spoken. Accept his spirit into our lives. And who is this king? He's a king who sacrifices for his people. A king who is baptized for us so that we might experience the favor of God. So we might hear the words, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter whom I delight in. Luke 10, 19 to 20, Jesus says this, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your incredible love for us. We thank you that you came to the earth in humility, becoming like us, so that we might experience your grace. We thank you that you were baptized for us. You experienced the judgment of your Father so that we might have life, so that we might experience the favor of the Father. Lord, help us to remember two things today. Help us to remember that there's nowhere in our lives that you can't touch, that there's no one that's too far from your grace and your mercy. Help us to realize that you can restore barren places. And for those of us who are believers, help us to walk 
and confidence, courage and joy, knowing that you delight in us, knowing that you love us, knowing that you care for us, knowing that you've planned out our lives in advance, that you prepared good works for those of us who are believers, that we would walk in them. That there's nothing that happens in our lives that's beyond your control. Help us to walk forward in that confidence and joy today. In Christ's name I pray, amen.